Thank you, Pastor Jack. Pray that we turn away what you have for us this morning. Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to be in God's Word as we are on Sunday mornings in John's Gospel. So if you'll turn to chapter 4 of John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel of the New Testament, we're going to cover verses 1 through 42. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible, follow along with us. So we're going to cover quite a bit of ground here this morning, but we're going to be looking at a very important, very interesting story uh, in John's Gospel here this morning. So John's Gospel, chapter 4. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. We'll cover verses 1 through 42 of John's Gospel. Wonderful study. I love John's Gospel. I love all the books of the Bible. But this is really declaring Jesus to us and the Gospel message and our need for Him, the Savior of the world in our lives. So you should be at John chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And note verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. Lord, as we see that Jesus has a divine appointment here with a woman that was looked down upon in society, an outcast, one who had uh, questionable morality and and Lord, yet he loved her, and he loved her enough to make a hard journey, um, long journey, to go and speak with her about living water. And Lord, I do pray this morning, if there's any of us that are here that have never have taken of the living water that Jesus has to give freely, that um, you would open up their eyes spiritually, that you would soften their hearts to receive Jesus um, as their Savior personally, but Lord, also for any of us that come into this place as believers, that is, we come in, we're feeling thirsty and dry and barren in our hearts and in our souls, that we would be refreshed and renewed this morning as we cover this text, knowing that Jesus loves us and desires to meet us here in this place this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we saw last week in chapter 3, of course, that wonderful story of Jesus that would have this religious leader come to him at night. His name was Nicodemus, and he was a man that was very much esteemed in the nation. Of course, we discussed how Nicodemus was the master teacher of Israel. So he was religious. He was a member of the religious council. He was a Pharisee. He was very intelligent, being a master teacher of Israel. But also, Nicodemus, being a Greek name, indicates to us that he was a, a student of, of just intellect and, and desiring to acquire knowledge. And he was well known. He was the best that the country had to offer. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus said to him that, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So we talked about the need for every single one of us that if we're going to see the kingdom of God, that we must be born again. And so we saw that wonderful uh, conversation recorded for us in God's word that took place 2,000 years ago with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And now as we see in chapter 4, uh, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. You recall that he was in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover, during the feast. And we know that Jesus was uh, doing signs and, and 
uh, people were noticing, the religious leaders are, are noticing him. Nicodemus said, we know, not just me, but we know that you come from God. And so uh, they're wondering who Jesus is, the authority that he has in doing these things. And now we, as we move into chapter 4, we're going to see that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he's headed up north to the area of Galilee where we know that he's going to spend most of his earthly ministry there in the Galilee region. And he's beginning to um, attract a great deal of attention. We read in our text that the disciples were baptizing people as the crowds were increasing that were coming to Jesus. And you recall at the end of chapter 3 that John's disciples were a bit concerned, weren't they? They were kind of anxious and uptight because in John's ministry as he was out there in the wilderness proclaiming that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the forerunner to the Messiah, that all of Israel were coming out to see G, uh, John the Baptist there in the wilderness at the Jordan River as he was baptizing, a baptism of preparation, a, a baptism of repentance. And now the crowds are beginning to leave John, and they're beginning to follow Jesus. And here we see that uh, John's disciples, or uh, not John's, but Jesus' disciples were baptizing. And John's disciples that are seeing the crowds leave are, are wondering, why is this? And John says something very, very important that all of us need to understand in our desire to serve the Lord in our journey in our Christian life, and it's simply this. John says, that's the way it's supposed to be. I've done my ministry. I'm a friend of the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom, that is the best man, is to bring the bride and the bridegroom together, and I've done that. I've proclaimed him. He's on the scene, and he must increase, and I must decrease, and it's true in our own lives that if we want to be used effectively of the Lord and we want to please the Lord, then he must increase, and we must decrease. We must die to self, pick up our cross, and follow after him. And we talked about that quite extensively last time. And so now the Pharisees, we see that they're upset. Remember that the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders. They're in Israel. They numbered about 6,000. And they were the ones, Pharisee means the dedicated ones. We've separated ourselves, uh, this group of men, this group of religious leaders, to where we're going to keep the most minute details of the law. And as the scribes would interpret the law that is given in God's word, they would write all kinds of regulations and all kinds of guidelines in keeping the law. And the Pharisees were that group that said, we're going to keep every dot and tittle of what the scribes, you know, interpret concerning the law. So we're to separate it once. And the thing is, is that the Pharisees had a lot of power in Israel. People were afraid of the Pharisees. And so the religious leaders, they don't like what Jesus has done. Going there into Jerusalem, the, the capital of the nation, that's where the temple was. That's where most of the religious leaders of the Pharisees and the other religious sects, such as the Sadducees and uh, the high priests and scribes and others, that's where they would be in Jerusalem. And here comes this one that he has no religious credentials as far as they're concerned. He's not a part of any of the religious establishment in Israel. He's a carpenter from Nazareth, but yet he comes in with great authority. 
And he comes in and he uh, would overturn the tables there at the temple during the time of the feast, uh, Passover, when all the people are there in the city. And he drove out the doves and, and the sheep and oxen, and he would rebuke the religious leaders publicly. He said, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. And so they didn't like that. And they're asking him, what authority do you do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And of course, they're thinking physical, the temple there, which was a magnificent building, that what do you mean you're going to destroy this temple? It's taken us years to remodify it. And you're going to destroy it and raise it up in three days. But Jesus is saying, destroy this temple. He's speaking of his body, his resurrection. That's the sign. That's the authority that I do these things. That's going to be the sign that he's going to tell the Pharisees up in the Galilee region that the Synoptic Gospels record that they came to him and said, show us this miracle, this great sign that you come from God. He said, no sign's going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. That is the sign of the resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of a large fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of earth for three days and three nights. So the resurrection is the sign. And so Jesus beginning to even speak about his resurrection. And the Pharisees now are afraid that they're losing their religious authority. And the people are listening to, to this one, this itinerant preacher that has come from Nazareth, rather than them. So Jesus at this time, he leaves the region of Judea. He's going to travel up north to Galilee, and notice in verse 4, it's very important that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, at this time, as a lot of you know, that Israel was divided up into three regions. The northern part was Galilee. It's very beautiful, rural up there. That's where the Sea of Galilee is. That's where Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry. Down south was Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. Again, the, the capital of Israel, the temple was there. Most of the religious uh, leaders were there in Jerusalem. And in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south was a middle region called Samaria. And of course, the quickest way for Jesus to go from Judea, Jerusalem, to Galilee up north is to go in a straight line, to go through Samaria. But here's the thing that was going on in Jesus' day. What would happen is that many of the Jews, when they would travel from south to north or from north to south, instead of going the quickest route, which would be right straight through the middle section of the country, Samaria, for example, what they would do if they were leaving the feast, Jerusalem, and heading up north to Galilee, what they would do is they would travel into the Jordan Valley, across the Jordan River into Perea, which is today Jordan. Then they would travel north, and when they got up north past Samaria, then they would come back west and cross the Jordan River once again into Galilee. And what should have been just a two-day journey ended up being like a five-day journey. Now, you might be thinking, why would they do that? Well, there, there was a reason for that. You see, unfortunately at this time, there was a lot of bigotry and there was a lot of hatred and prejudice of the Jews towards the Samaritans. There was this deep distrust and dislike between the two groups. And the reason was, is because you might recall from your Old Testament study, and if you came out on Wednesday nights, we went over this, that when the ten northern tribes, the house of Israel, were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, that happened in about 722 B.C., the Assyrians, the powerhouse of the day, they were brutal, they were mean, and they came down to ten northern tribes, and they took the Jews away captive, they put fish hooks in their mouths and drug them off. 
but they didn't take all of them. They would leave some behind. And then some of the Assyrians came in and settled in that area, and they intermarried with the Jews, and their children would become, and their offspring would be known as the Samaritans. And they would settle in that area of the center of Israel. And the Samaritans would have a theological difference. Um, the Samaritans had not accepted the whole of the Old Testament as the Jews, of course, did. The Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, that is, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. And even then, they made some changes in the text that was different from the Hebrew text. The Samaritans did not accept the writings, which included the Psalms that we have, or the Proverbs. They did not accept any of the prophetic books, only the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Samaritans also were not allowed to come to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice. So what they ended up doing is they built their own temple there on Mount Garrison. And you're going to see that that's going to be mentioned here in the chapter. So they have this temple that was on Mount Garrison, and that only made the division deeper. And to make matters worse, what happened about 160 years uh, before the birth of Jesus is there was a Syrian king. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now that name may ring a bell with you if you've been with us in our study of the book of Daniel. Daniel, um, some you know, 600 years almost before uh, the birth of Jesus, when he's prophesying, he would prophesy about that Syrian king that would come on the scene and he would be a type, he would be a picture of the one that's going to come on the scene yet in the future called the Antichrist. So this Syrian king that Daniel prophesied, he would come on the scene about 160 B.C., and he was brutal, he was mean. He came into Jerusalem, and he would go into the temple, he would uh, sacrifice a pig there in the Holy of Holies, he would spread the blood all around the temple. Of course, uh, a pig was considered unclean to the Jews. He tried to force some of the priests to drink the pig's blood. He, he killed many, many Jews. So he is and was a picture of the one that's going to yet come, the Antichrist, that will come in the tribulation period, and he will desecrate the temple as well. And it was Antiochus that set up an image of Zeus, and um, it was a terrible time in the nation, just as Antichrist is going to set up an image of himself and command the world to worship him. So that was Antiochus Epiphanes, and of course the Maccabean brothers would rise up at that time, and they would lead this revolt, and after years of, of fighting this uh, Syrian king, he would, they would drive uh, the Maccabean brothers and others who joined them, Antiochus, out of Jerusalem. So it, it's an important history, but the reason that I mention um, Antiochus, because at that time, some of the Samaritans had joined in with Antiochus. So that embedded this deep hatred with the Jews, and so much so that it ended up, that the Jews ended up destroying their temple on Mount Garrison in about 108 B.C. So all this bad history that has gone on for hundreds of years, and what it did it was it embedded this deep hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans and vice versa. 
So it's important that we do have this historical perspective of what the attitudes of the Samaritans and the Jews were towards each other. And we learn in verse 4 here, as I told you, take note of it, that Jesus did not take the traditional route, which he was to avoid that area of Samaria but, and go around, but instead he goes through Samaria, verse 5, and he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So Jesus goes through Samaria to a city of Samaria, uh, specifically Sychar, where Jacob's well was. It is interesting, um, I've been to this site. You used to be able to go to this site um, back in the 80s and early 90s when I went to Israel, but you can't go there now because it's right smack in the middle of the West Bank where there's all this unrest going on and it's dangerous and plus it's a little bit of a hike, so people don't go there today. But you can actually go to this site uh, that they have identified as in Sychar uh, and uh, Jacob's well. And the reason that Jesus goes there on his way back to Galilee is because, I like the way that John writes here, he needed to go through Samaria. It's like John is saying, he has this divine appointment. He has a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman that he's going to share with and minister to and went into the kingdom as we continue reading in verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. In verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is there at this partial of ground, uh, Jacob's well, and, and he's tired from his journey. He's there at the sixth hour, which would be at noon. It's hot. He is thirsty. In the Gospels, we talk a lot about Jesus' divinity, that uh, we know that Jesus is God incarnate, um, that we know that Jesus was 100% God and is 100% man, um, and here is Jesus that we see his, his humanity. We see that he was one that was tired. He is weary. He is thirsty. It's interesting that Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he was likened unto his brethren. In other words, he is like you and me. He knows what you know, it, it, it means and what it's like to be tired, to be thirsty, he would fall asleep in a boat as after he'd ministered to all the crowds up in the Galilee region because I believe Jesus was so tired of, you know, the long day and exhausted physically. So he knows what it means to be tired, but listen. He also understands and he knows if you're here today and maybe you're tired, I'm not talking about physically, but maybe you're tired in your heart and in your soul and in your spirit. He knows that as well. And he knows everything about you. And he knows your heart and he sees you. And I want to encourage you that this chapter is for you. Because the Lord desires to refresh you and renew you and minister to you in a very special way. So here is, in verse 7, a woman of Samaria that came to draw uh, water and Jesus turns to her and says, give me a drink. Now a couple things here. Why would this woman be coming at noon in the heat of the day? You see, what would happen is that it would be the women that would come to draw water from the well. That's just the way it was in that culture. That's the way it is in a lot of cultures. You see, 
we're used to, we just go to a faucet and we turn it on and we got water and we got clean water that comes and we're very blessed to have that. But in many parts of the world, it isn't that way. And I remember being in South Sudan when I was there and teaching the chaplains of the Southern Sudanese Army that when we were there in the compound in Nimali that they had a freshwater well there and the women would come in the mornings and in the evenings and they would fill up their buckets and, and, uh, with water at this first uh, freshwater well. And I remember the first couple of days thinking, why is it just the women that are coming? And I didn't understand that. Why aren't the men coming? You know, those buckets are heavy. And, and it was interesting. They would put them, you know, a little uh, scarf or whatever on their heads and they put it on their heads and just carry it on there and walking around and they're carrying, you know, another five gallons here. And I thought, well, the men should be doing that, but that's the way it was in their culture, and that's the way it was in this culture. The men are off doing other things. Some of the men at that time that we were there in Sudan were off to war. And here it was customary for the women to come and draw water in the mornings, and in the evenings the men would be doing other things. And here comes this woman from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus is there. And he addresses her. He addresses her and says, give me a drink. Jesus is alone. His disciples have gone into the city to buy food, which we see in verse 8. Now remember that traditionally the Jews and Samaritans didn't talk to each other. They, they never addressed one another. And in addition to that, a rabbi in the Jewish religion would never be seen talking with a woman in public. So I'm sure that she's taken back by Jesus asking her, give me a drink, and, she, you know, she would be. Um, also, for, for Jesus to take a drink of water out of her bucket would be considered very much unclean. So she's kind of astonished. She's taken back by this. She's, she's wondering, she's, you know, what is this all about? And then the woman of Samaria in verse 9 said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this Samaritan woman, who we don't know her name, it's not given, but God does. And this divine appointment of Jesus has been set up since the beginning of time before the world was created. She's coming up the hill to the well at noon. Now, why at that hour again? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say here specifically. It could be that she has an urgent need, but, you know, it was quite a walk to get up there and, and quite the effort. It could be that she wanted to avoid the other women of the village, and we're going to see that there may be good reason for her to do that because she's going to be a woman of questionable morality that we're going to see here. And also, with that, she would be a social outcast. So she's probably waiting for all the other women to come up the hill and get their water, and then she would come up later so she doesn't have to listen to the, the comments or uh, the others talking about her and gossiping about her and coming down on her. And I think that's very probable, and that's why she's coming up later. She's by herself. She's thinking, I'll come up and get my water. I don't have to be hassled or anything. And then she sees Jesus at the well. 
and she recognizes that he's a Jew, perhaps because the Jews dressed a little bit differently than the Samaritans. And what they would wear on the hem of their garments is they would wear a, a, a ribbon of blue, and they did that because the blue represented heaven, and we're a heavenly people. So she knows that he's a Jew, and she walks up. She'd been trying to avoid the other, you know, women at the well, and she's probably thinking, oh, no, here's this Jewish man. How is it that I can get this water that I need without being harassed? And she approaches him, probably hoping to get the water quickly and be able to leave without any kind of, uh, you know, um, conversation or altercation happening or whatever. And he says to her, give me a drink. And she is floored by this. She's amazed by it, by the request. And I'm sure that it's the first time that she's heard a kind greeting from a Jewish man. And then to ask something from a Samaritan woman, how is it, she says, that you, uh, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? We have no dealings with one another. But let's continue reading. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it who it is who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water and the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where then do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock now you remember in chapter three we talked about this with nicodemus coming to jesus at night and jesus said to him directly that you must be born again, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is wondering, he's wrestling with this. He's saying, how can that be? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And, and we know that Jesus is talking spiritually. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Nicodemus, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And here he's talking spiritual as well. And she's thinking physical water. So Jesus here, talking about living water, and here she's thinking about the water there at Jacob's well. She's wondering, how do I get this living water? I think she's beginning to wonder. She's wrestling with this as well. How do I get this, this bubbling, this springing up water, literally, is what she's talking about. The well is deep. You have nothing to draw with. How do you get this living water, she's asking. And she's beginning to see that Jesus is perhaps someone special or at least different. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? In verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. I'm not talking about physical. And if you drink at this well, you're going to thirst again. And I imagine Jesus is pointing to that well. If you drink of this well here, you're going to think again. You're, you're going to thirst again. You're going to have to keep coming up and drawing water from this. And whoever drinks of the water that I have to give, that is the living water. It's a fountain springing up to everlasting life. People of the world are crying out, I thirst I don't care how successful they are or how much fame or prestige they might have or wealth. If they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they are thirsty. 
And here Jesus is talking about living water, and we see that, that water is talked about throughout Scripture. Isaiah would say, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. In Revelation chapter 21, Jesus said, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him that thirsts. We know that in Matthew that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we're going to see in a couple chapters that Jesus is going to say that I am the bread of life, and whoever believes in me and, and shall never hunger or thirst again. And people all around us, and all of us know those that are thirsty. And there may be some here this morning. Then maybe you're here this morning and you say, I'm thirsty. And not just physically, but spiritually in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul. So the question that I have to ask is this. What well have you been drinking from? Have you been drinking from the well of the world? That is pleasure and greed and drugs and alcohol. If you have, you're going to thirst again. So many people are drawn from the well of the world and they think that they will find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, but they thirst. And it's a wonderful, wonderful time in their lives and moment in their lives when they finally realize that it is true what Jesus said, that if I draw from the well of the world, then I will continually be thirsty and nothing of the world will quench the thirst that I have. That's why you see those who are famous and have fame and wealth and all that, they seem to have it all, but they thirst and they live ruined, wrecked lives because they were made to worship the true and the living God and they're thirsty. And the Greek word for well here, again, that the woman uses speaks of a, a hole or a cistern that is just able to hold water. And water is very valuable in that area of Israel. It's dried. And we can relate to that in living in the western part of our nation. And so what they would do is they would just dig, you know, holes and caverns and out of the rock. And, and when the water comes, it run down into that cistern, into that, you know, um, that hole. And she's talking about water in that that is stagnant. Listen, if you drink from the water of the world, your life's going to be stagnant. And you're always going to be going back to get more water, and you'll never ultimately be one that has true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. But whoever drinks of the water of Jesus Christ will never thirst again. And if there is anyone that is here this morning that you've never drank of the living water of Jesus, that has surrendered your life to him. The invitation is given to you for you to come and drink of the living water that he has to offer. Because the world, if you keep drinking of the world's water, it's going to be stagnant and it's going to be something that's not going to quench your heart and your soul. There's no hope in the world. It's in Jesus Christ. And he freely wants you to have this water as you surrender your life to him, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. If you're here and you've never come to Jesus, just like he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. But I want to make a secondary application. For you who are believers, if you're here and you pull away from the Lord, and you pull away from the word of God, 
and you pull away from a desire to want to be close and intimate with the Lord, and you begin to drink from the well of the world, you're going to dry up. And you're going to be continually thirsty. And that is why Jesus is saying this to the Samaritan woman and to every single one of us this morning. He says it very honestly and lovingly because he cares for us. The water that I have to give to you will satisfy you unto everlasting life. And verse 15, the, the woman said to him, to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I believe that she's wrestling with this. She's thinking, how can I avoid this trip? I'm tired of coming here. But she's still thinking physically. Are you tired of the world? You see, John later on in his epistle would write that as Christians, we're not to have a love for the world. Are you tired of the world? Are you tired of the lies and what the world has to offer? Because the world, it seems like, oh man, I'm going to go and, and take up the pleasures of the world or the ways of the world. And you end up being thirsty and dry and being deceived and end up being disappointed and in despair. That's the world, folks. That's what the world has to offer you. So here she's tired. She's tired of the world. She's tired of, of having to come and make this trip all the time. And she's wrestling with this. And Jesus continues to minister to her and said to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said, well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She knows something really special about him. See how wise and wonderful, though, that our Lord is working and touching the heart of this woman? He, takes, he talks to her about living water that he has to give. She's intrigued, interested. But notice here that Jesus says, go get your husband. Well, I don't have one. You're right. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with right now is not your husband. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Because, listen, this is important. Before you can enjoy this living water that I have to offer, that you need to realize your need for the living water. I like what Warren Worsby says about this as he comments. He writes that, as he writes about this, that before there is conversion, there first needs to be conviction. Go call your husband. Notice how he ministers to her. He didn't rip on her. He didn't, you know, uh, you know, just blast her. But he addresses the sin. You're a woman of questionable morality. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with is not your husband. And remember that in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, our Lord showing the perfect harmony of grace and truth. He spoke truthfully and with all authority, but with grace and with kindness. It's the loving kindness of God that leads men to repentance. We need to realize that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So, Oftentimes, what happens with people sharing about Jesus is 
sometimes they'll share without a message of repentance, of sin. And unfortunately, that is happening more and more behind the pulpit. You can't truly give the gospel without mentioning why we need the gospel, why we need this living water, why we need to be born again, as Nicodemus was told, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And that's why Jesus came, to take care of the sin problem. But other times, the other side of the spectrum, are there are those who just come, and they just come with fire and brimstone. And I wonder, you know, what it would be like for many, if they met this Samaritan woman, how they would have treated her and talked to her and just blasted her. And here Jesus is so wise with that perfect balance of grace and truth. Hey, I perceive you're a prophet, she says, as he addresses the sin. You can see inside my heart, yet there's a thirst for the living water of Jesus. Her knowledge of Jesus is expanding. And verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where uh, one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. In verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not just a location. It's not just a mountain. But it's a matter of the heart. The Father's desire is, is for us to worship in spirit and in truth. You worship in spirit. That is, that you're worshiping as one who is taken of this living water. One who is born again by the Spirit of God. We have a heart to worship him because of who he is. He's worthy of that worship. He is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. That's my prayer for you on a daily basis, that you be one that you would worship in spirit and in truth, just giving your heart to the Lord, that when you come in, that your heart is given to Him, not just an exercise of singing with their voice, but with our hearts. And one of the things that um, is, uh, I think, important for us is to be able to do that, you see, I think one of the things that concerns me about when we have, you know, in the church today, those who want to enhance worship, they want to have the smoke and the lights and everything, and I know there's a debate on all that, but here's the thing. I tell worshipers, or worship leaders, that is, that when you lead worship, here's a good worship leader, what he does. He leads people into worship of Jesus, and then they he disappears or she disappears. You lead people in the worship of Jesus and then you disappear to where they're not looking at you. It isn't about performance and now the outward appearances and all of this. It's the same with the teaching of the Word of God. In John chapter 6, he's going to say, the words that I give to you are spirit and life. And so, so much focus today is on worship and on the teaching of the Word about appearance and you know, and outward, you know, performance and all of this. And actually, I believe it can take you away from really worshiping the Lord and hearing from the Lord if we're not careful. I'm looking for those who are going to worship in spirit and in truth, just giving your hearts to the Lord, surrendering your heart to Jesus Christ, and then truth, knowing the truth of who God is as revealed in the Word of God. 
The Samaritans worship what they did not know, verse 22. They had altered so much of God's word, so we worship the true God as revealed in all of the scriptures. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I just wonder, and I think she is, she's wondering, are you him? Are you him? And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Hey, I am the one, the Messiah that has been told that is to come. Jesus reveals himself to sinners. Now, some say that Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. If you ever hear anybody say that, just take them to verse 26 here, where clearly he did claim to be Messiah. He said, I am he. And continue reading in verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the disciples were amazed they're shocked that jesus would talk with the woman from samaria they keep quiet and the woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the man come and see a man who told me all things that i ever did could this be the christ and then they went out of the city and came to him notice in verse 28 here that she left her water pot she came in the first place to get water didn't she she came to get physical water and now she is leaving with spiritual water and you know what you'll find to be true? That when you have the spiritual water that is flowing, that is refreshing you, that is bubbling inside of you, Jesus would say that if anyone thirsts, come to me, and out of his belly will flow torrents of living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit. When you have that happen, you know what the result's going to be? You're going to leave the water part, pots of the world behind. She left her water pot. She doesn't need it. And you will do the same thing. You'll leave the water pots of the world behind. You don't need that stuff anymore because you have the living water that is refreshing and fulfilling you and giving you true joy and peace. So she goes into town and tells the men, come see a man, all things that I ever did. Here's a woman that, that had five husbands living with someone and the men said, we better go check this out. But she had met Jesus and Jesus knew everything about her and he still loved her. And listen, he knows everything about you. And he has a deep love for you. Desiring to give you living water. And in the meantime, verse 31 reads, His disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was revived and refreshed and renewed because he was doing the will of his Father. He was reaching out, he was sharing, he was revealing himself. And as we do the same thing, that is, as we share Jesus Christ with others, as we reach out, as we tell people about living water that is to be given to them and offered to them to come to Jesus Christ, you're going to find the same thing. You're going to be strengthened and refreshed and renewed. Share with others. That's how you'll just be excited about the things of the Lord and about your faith in Jesus Christ when you offer people that living water that Jesus has to give to them. 
And verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And I imagine that as Jesus is saying that up on this well, all of a sudden from the village, he's seeing all these men, all these people coming from the village to check this out. Here's this woman that says, this may be the Christ. He told me everything about me. He talked to me about this living water. They're saying, we need to check this out. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples, and as he sees those white turbans, he says, look, the fields, they're already white for harvest. Do you know that? For you who go to work in your workplace. For you in your neighborhood and other family members. Look, the fields are, are, are already white for harvest. And he was talking about the Samaritans, the people who were despised and hated and ignored and forgotten, the ones that no one else wanted to be around, the others that no one you know, wanted to deal with the Samaritans. They looked down on them, and Jesus says, look, they're ripe for the harvest now. They're coming to the kingdom. And his disciples perhaps would think that, you know, these are Samaritans. And that's the whole point. He was going to die for them. And he did die for them because of his love for them. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody that is here that you feel like, I'm a Samaritan. I'm looked down upon. I feel like I've messed up in life. That No one wants to, to deal with me. People look down on me. How could lo God love me? He died for you. And he says to you this morning, come drink of the living water that I have to give and you'll never thirst again. And then as we finish this morning, that he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Now I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored. You have not entered into their labors. And many the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. In verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice here in verse 38 that I've sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored. What's he talking about? Apparently others had told them about Messiah is going to come. Remember she said, we have heard that Messiah is going to come, the Christ, and he's going to tell us all things. So who were the others? Again, it doesn't say here specifically, but I suspect that it was the disciples of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was at Enon here, you recall in the previous chapter, baptizing where there was much water, you recall, and that wasn't far from here. So people coming from all over Israel, I think that perhaps they had heard that John the Baptist was out there and that his disciples got the message as they came in and said, hey, prepare, Messiah's coming. And so she's saying, hey, we've heard We've heard that Christ is coming. The Messiah is going to tell us all things. You know, the Lord may have you play a part 
and just preparing people, their hearts, for the next person who's going to come along or the next message that they might hear where they finally give their hearts to Jesus Christ. So don't be discouraged if you're thinking, I've been sharing with this person at work or a family member or a friend at school or a neighbor, and it seems like, you know, I've been laboring and laboring, and, and don't grow weary in that because the Lord's going to use that, and you keep praying. Because there may be that time where all of a sudden their eyes are opened up and their hearts are softened to where they're ready to receive the living waters as the Holy Spirit draws them, but you've been a part of that. And Paul talks about that to the Corinthian church, doesn't he? He says one water and one, you know, one plants, but God gets the increase. God is the one that draws people to himself. He gets the glory. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but he may use you in a part to labor. And we all can do that. We can all minister in that way. So don't get frustrated if you think, well, I shared with that guy at work, you know, last week, and he said, you know, buzz off. He didn't want to, you know, receive the gospel. Don't quit. Keep praying. Keep sharing, all right? Keep laboring. The fields are wide into harvest. And oftentimes, they're going to, as you are a Christian, and they know you're a Christian, they're going to be watching you. And they're going to be looking to see the reality of Jesus in your life. And I pray that they would continue to see light and the love of Jesus coming from you and the living water that flows from you. That you have a life that is blessed and renewed and, and is, you know, a life that has true peace and joy. And that you're a new creation in Christ. So here's this wonderful story as he uses and go sees this Samaritan woman, the one that would be the least. Isn't it a contrast, chapter 3 from chapter 4? Here's chapter 3, the best that the country had to offer Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, you must be born again. And here's this Samaritan woman that probably is the least of the least. And Jesus goes to see her and talks about living water, which shows us that all of us need Jesus. And it's true what the scripture says, that God is no respecter of person. The foot of the cross is flat, and we all have access to the cross in this living water. And you might be here and you might think, well, I'm a pretty good person, you know. Nicodemus, man, he was esteemed. He was religious, intelligent. And yet Jesus said, you must be born again. So don't think that my goodness is going to get me into heaven. A lot of people think that because none of our goodness is going to get us into heaven. It is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and coming in faith to, in Jesus Christ that we have salvation. It isn't anything that we do. It's all what he did. And also, though, the other side of the spectrum is this, that we see here in chapter 4, and then we're going to close. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, God could never forgive me because of the things that I have done. And Jesus has living water to give to you in forgiveness. That all manner of sin is forgiven is what Jesus would say. I don't care what you have done that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ to wash you clean from all of your sins. Will you give your heart to him? The living water is available. He loves you. And he's saying that if you come and drink the water that I have to give, it will spring up into everlasting life. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful gospel and just how Jesus cares about it seems like the one who maybe no one else cares about, the one who is to the world insignificant, but they're not insignificant to you. So, Father, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that has never come to the living waters, 
that maybe you think you're a pretty good person because you've gone to church for a lot of your life, or, but you've never surrendered your heart to him. Or if you're here and you think, well, God could never love me or forgive me, here he demonstrates as he goes out of his way to meet this woman, to win into the kingdom, to offer living water, and it's offered to you this morning. But here's the thing. Jesus dealt with her sin, and she confessed it. You've spoken truthfully. And Jesus knew everything about her, and he knows everything about you. And is coming and confessing that I am a sinner in need of the Savior Jesus who died for my sins. And as you believe that and he rose from the grave, that he's alive, he conquered sin and death, he validated what he did on Calvary's cross, you're going to take of the living waters that reaps to everlasting life. Just as Nicodemus was told, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's a free gift to be given to you. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. You ask and you receive it. You turn to Jesus, you repent. Quit going the direction you're going and turn to Jesus and surrender your life to him. If that means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray this prayer in your heart and mean it from your heart that Jesus, I believe that you're the one that gives living water. And I come and I confess that I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior of the world. And I believe you died for my sins. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I ask you into my heart and into my life, and I surrender my life to you. And I believe you rose again from the grave, and you're touching my heart. And Lord, I let you in. I open my heart to you. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And thank you for this living water. Thank you for making me a new creation in Christ as I come to you and surrender, born again by the Spirit of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for me. If anybody prayed that prayer this morning, even if you're out in a coffee shop, because we have those who can talk with you and minister to you, but if you prayed that prayer, will you just raise your hand and put it back down? Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else at all? We just want to give people opportunity to know that they are loved and, ref and the Lord, you know, hears your prayers and you're saying that I'm making a declaration. I am saying that I've made a decision for Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for those who have made that decision. And I pray that you would just fill them to overflowing with the living waters that you have to give to them. And Lord, I pray for us here, all of us, that we would continually be drinking of you, that we wouldn't be going to other wells because we know that that will leave us empty and, and dry and barren and unsatisfied. We thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we do want to pray for those who need prayer. We pray for Travis and Heather, Heather's family that have experienced loss, but even though there is grief and sorrow, but as Paul would say to the church at Thessalonica, we don't grieve as though we have no hope. And there is that living hope, the promise that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That as believers, that we go 
to be with you. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we thank you that Rhonda is with you, a woman that loved you and believed in you and raised her children in the ways of the Lord. But we, Lord, we do pray for comfort this week and strength. And we pray for those who are hurting in any way, those who need direction or wisdom, those who need um, encouragement, Lord, provision, that you would work on behalf of your people, that we would just stay close to you, walk with you, and enjoy you. So, Lord, we thank you again for this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? Again, for those who made a decision for Christ this morning, even if you're out in a coffee shop, Pastor John's here to pray with you. We want to minister to you and, and, and give you some things that will help you. But also um, for anyone who just needs prayer for anything,